Bienvenidos al Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of, serving in, and growing a migrant church in el siglo XXI. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to the second and third generation, how does the migrant church continue to thrive? What should a migrant church look like today? These questions and more will we explore together with your hosts, Emmanuel Padilla and la doctora Elizabeth Conde Frazier. Your hosts are Puerto Rican, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. It's part of who we are. On this episode, we are joined by Dr. Daniel Rodriguez, author of A Future for the Latino Church and professor of religion and Hispanic studies at Pepperdine University. He joins us to discuss the changing dynamics of Iglesia Latinas. We look over the last 10 years and reflect on healthy and challenging developments in La Iglesia. And we also ask Dr. Rodriguez to say more about his vision for the future of ministry. So siéntase en casa, make yourself at home, and let's get started. Hermano Rodriguez, welcome to the Mestizo Podcast. How are you today? Mejor de lo que merezco, Emmanuel. Thank you. Thank you for uh, this wonderful opportunity to um, be on air with you and uh, my distinguished colleague, Elizabeth Conde Frazier, Dr. Elizabeth Conde Frazier. It's great to be here. Elizabeth, how are you doing this morning? Well, as my husband would say, if I was better, I'd be in the kingdom. If I was better, oh, you'd be dead. Good Lord. <laughs> We're having a heat wave here where I am in Michigan. It's uh, 40 degrees at this time of the year. That's a heat wave, man. That is a heat wave. That is a heat wave. It's a, it's a gray day for me here, sadly. And uh, I don't feel gray, but it's a gray day. You know, it's one of those days that you look up to the sky and you go, man, I wish, I wish there were just a little more sunlight out there, like our brother Daniel in California. Yeah, if you were down here in Southern California right now, you could uh, walk around with a tank top and flip-flops and catch some rays. Que buena vida. Hey, new listeners, you know we always start with that kind of weather update or what we're eating. We're always being silly, but we want to welcome you to the show. Welcome to a mixed space, a space where people live in the hyphen. Ni de aquí, ni de allá. We told you in the first episode that we wanted to remind you to leave us a review, to subscribe to the show. We want to see 100 reviews by the end of the month. That's what we're looking for. I asked you for 50 at the first episode. Y ahora la, la, el desafío gets more serious, right? We go from 50 to 100. I think that that's entirely fair. Don't forget also that there's still time to sign up for the first webinar in the series that we're doing in partnership with Passion to Plant. The webinar will be on March 24th at 6.30 Central Standard Time. If you're a church planter, a ministry leader, or considering a future in, the ch uh, in ministry in the church, the Mestizo webinar series is designed for you. Uh, so gain access to seasoned black and brown ministry leaders who have experienced the challenges and questions that you're facing in ministry leadership. You can register today by going to worldoutspoken.com slash webinars. That's worldoutspoken.com slash webinars. I got one last thing I want to say. Since the first episode of the show got published, we received a couple notes that I thought I'd read because they're important. I think, uh, I think you need to know that you're not alone in this. We had a friend, a sister who sent us the following note. She wrote, I kind of started carrying this shame about me not really making the effort to know my family history or where we come from after my great-grandpa passed away. Also, I was a bit upset at my family for not ensuring that we would know, all because of assimilation here in the U.S. and apparently assimilation in Mexico too. 
Listening to this podcast makes me feel better knowing that I'm not the only one who became interested later in life. Indeed, Edmana, you are not the only one. We have another note here that I want to read for us from another brother who wrote this. Season one of this show is pivotal, was pivotal to my decolonizing, and I'm looking forward to season two. Mm. I think that's so important. It reminds us that we are not alone. I think of Elijah who, you know, he goes up to the mountain. He says, I'm the only prophet who hasn't bent knee to Baal. And God says, no, there are 600 others. Uh, Brothers and sisters, this space of the Mestizo podcast is for us, those of us who are wrestling with and trying to make sense of our heritage. Hermano Daniel, I have a question for you in light of that. You Mm -hmm. took a move. You made a move that strikes me as such a big deal. You at one point in life decided that the right thing to do for you and your family was to move back to Mexico, I believe, to learn the Spanish language and to teach. Is that right? Uh, Yes, that's mostly correct. Um, Some would say if they knew more about my background and the decision in 1985 to pack up our family, my wife, our five children, two dogs and a cat, and to move from Modesto, California to Puebla in the southern part of Mexico, they would say, es evidente, el hermano Daniel es más tocado que las mañanitas. He's a pretty crazy guy to do that at 30 years old. But I felt... um, I had called, been called to ministry uh, to serve uh, the Lord's church, but it was clear to me that, um, you know, my identity as uh, a Mexican American, as a Chicano, I grew up in the late sixties and went to college in the seventies. Um, and I was part of Mecha and all of that movement. And I was interested in, in civil rights concerns, but at the same time, I felt like there was a larger issue that needed to be dealt with. Um, and I was being called to the ministry. And it didn't take long before I realized, you know, I'm, I'm serving predominantly Anglo churches, um, but I've got this heritage that uh, God has blessed me with. I've got this uh, look, this mestizo face. My grandmother used to say, ay, mijo, tienes cara de indio. Uh, I've got this, you know, uh, you know uh, very obvious uh, Mexican look. And I, I came to believe that there was a reason for that and, uh, and that God wanted me to reconnect with my ancestral roots, my uh, valores transcendientes, uh, reconnect with my not just Hispanic, but more specifically Mexican roots um, to help me better understand the dynamics uh, among uh, Latinos, particularly those of Mexican ancestry here in the United States. I felt like I had a good grasp of the second and third generation experience, but I really did not understand the first generation experience, the immigrant experience. So moving back to Mexico or moving to Mexico, I didn't, wasn't born. I was born in the, in the Northern capital of Mexico, also known as Los Angeles, California. (laughs) And the Northern capital. Yeah. And so going to Puebla was um, just an incredible experience for me. One that has transformed not only my life, but my view of ministry and particularly my, uh, my sense of, of purpose and, and calling to uh, Latinx churches here in the United States. How long were you in Puebla? Uh, we were there for nine years. And uh, the first year and a half, uh, at least the first year, were extremely difficult because I, I didn't speak Spanish, but I had this great disguise. I fit right in until I started speaking Spanish. And then people thought I was making fun of gringos. 
And they would say, that's, that's funny. That's funny. That's great. And then they'd say, yeah, basta. And then I'd keep talking and they'd realize, oh, wait, that's how you talk. And that's when I was introduced to this term, pocho. Um, and I heard again and again, when people would hear me struggle with uh, my ancestral language, they would say, que vergüenza. Uh, I got tired of hearing that, but at the same time, I felt like it was important for me to, to make that sacrifice, uh, to reconnect. And it has made all the difference in my life and the life of my family. Uh, all of my children are bilingual now, several of them trilingual. They speak Mandarin as well. So it has blessed us immensely. I want to ask about the Mandarin, but I, I want to stop here for a second and go back to this this uh, this pocho word. I just learned it not too long ago. Tell me more about how you pressed into that. How did you have the resilience to continue? I mean, you already took a bold step to, to move back to Puebla, but how did you have the resilience to press in? I mean, most of us that are born here in the States, we really struggle with those kinds of things when we're called pocho or, you know, there's, there's so many other Agringado, words like that. Agringado, yeah. right. So how did you press in? Uh, to be very, very honest, because I'm assuming that someday my wife is going to listen to this podcast and she would say, no seas mentiroso. I, I, during the first year, at least twice, I was like, you know what, that's it. We're going back to the States. I can't do this. And part of it was, you know, the, the shame, the, the sense of inadequacy, not being able to communicate. I mean, I was 30 years old. I had a master's degree. I'd been in full-time ministry for almost 10 years, uh, a relatively effective communicator. And suddenly I'm speaking like a third grader, being laughed at, being corrected by children. Um, and um, just felt like maybe I had made the wrong choice. But my wife has reminded, reminded me again and again, we didn't come here to go home. We didn't come here to go home. And, um, and, and so by God's grace, you know, we are what we are, Paul says. And only by his grace did I have the resilience that you mentioned to, to keep plodding along. And, um, and I remember the day that uh, I was apologizing for some idiosyncrasy that I was unfamiliar with. And one of the uh, pastors in the church that we had planted that we were working with said, No te preocupes, hermano Daniel. Eres más mexicano que nopal. And when he said that, that was that was the day I will never forget. Uh, the day that I suddenly was no longer, well, I was still a pocho, but I suddenly was being affirmed and validated. And um, and we still. Redemption. Yes, hermana, that's it. It was. It was a day of redemption. Or the, or the day when uh, several months later, someone came up to me and they said, we were talking and someone said, Eres de Guatemala or de Honduras? And suddenly again, hermana, I was like, you know, wow. They didn't say right away, oh, eres un pocho, eres del norte, eres Mexico-Americano. Um, you know, so I was, that was a great experience. And um I still make mistakes. I still, uh, you know, have to laugh at myself. If I don't, I'm just laughed at. Um, but again, I think now we're modeling. I think it, I didn't, I didn't realize what an, a significant model this was going to turn out to be for second, third generation Latinos, including people in ministry that I get to visit with now. And, and they say, well, you know, I, I struggle. I really don't speak Spanish very well. And I can use myself as an example 
and maybe even more powerfully with those first gen pastors who really struggle with English, who say, well, I'm just too old to learn. And I said, hermano, tenía yo 30 años cuando empecé a aprender el español. A duras penas hablo como un mexicano, but there I go. And, and so it gives me some credibility that I had no idea I would have. You remind me, Daniel, of something that happened to me. I had to go to Puerto Rico and do an academic presentation. Okay. It's one thing to hablar con la gente en la calle. It's another thing to have to do an academic presentation. And these, you know, refined academic words and whatnot. And I went, I, thank God I was presenting on the third day. And I went there on the first day. And the first thing that caught me was the protocol that people have, you know, of how they, they, uh, they present themselves. They thank this one and they thank the other, et cetera, et cetera. No la sequedade. You know, hello, you all, here I am. And boom, you got, you got to start, no. right? I was like, oh my God, they thanked, they thanked all these people and everybody had a title and I had to, you know, figure out what these titles were. And then at lunch, I felt such anxiety at lunchtime. I ran down to the library and I started looking up academic uh, articles and stuff just to pull out words, you know, that I could use to substitute for my, you know, very simplistic little everyday kind of language. And I was like, oh my God, you know, how am I going to sound to these people? And I have to make sure that I did all that. Then I had a friend of mine, you know, like check my PowerPoint, todo acento y cuanta cosa había. And then I had this one brother who he's always checking you. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. He's always checking you. He's always checking your, your academic piece. He's always checking your language, you know, all of this. And I was like, I didn't see him for the last two days. El tercer día that hermano was there and he's sitting right behind me, man. And he goes, um, estoy aquí para escucharte a ti nada más. And I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, help me. <laughs> So, you know, I really know how you feel. Yo sudé yeah. la gota gorda oh. on that day. Yes. Mm, you know, yeah. I, I've learned so many things already in this interview. One, the gift of a good partner who's going to help you, res you know, show resilience as you try to further and further recapture the, the identity, the language that you've inherited. And then I've also learned that, that sometimes it's not just language, right? To Elizabeth's point, there's these cultural aspects to, to entering into the worlds of, of, of Mexico and Puerto Rico and other uh, Latin American countries. That's not easy. Uh, let me remind you guys too, that the grace of a brother and sister can go a long way. I also had to teach a class here at Moody in Spanish. I taught, I, I taught a theology course a couple years ago and the classroom was mostly uh, Mexicanos here from, from the city of Chicago. And they were a real gift to me as students because every once in a while I'd be teaching and I'd run into a word that I went, oh, I only know this word in English. And I'd describe it and we as a class would collectively work it out and say, okay, this is the word. And it was a gift to them. It was a gift to mm -hmm. me. And it, it, it brought in some dialogue that helped us to further consider the concept. So it was a gift. So the grace of a brother and sister who's willing to work mm -hmm. with you in the language is a big deal. No, you're absolutely right, Emmanuel. When we are developing multi-ethnic cross-cultural relationships, something we can learn from the Lord is that, you know, there's a mutuality that builds trust and lowers effective filters. When he encounters the Samaritan woman in John 4, you know, the first thing he says is, could you give me something to drink? There was something that she could offer him. Of course, she was taken aback by it, but still, I think there's something powerful when, I had to do it and I still do it when I have to say, hermano, ayúdame. I'm not sure how to say this. I'm not sure how to say that. And 
when they can help you and I, I say thank you, like you said, Hermana, then acknowledge them whenever you're in public. Boy, you have to acknowledge the people who have blessed you, uh, the los patrocinadores. You just you just have to you know learn those idiosyncrasies, but uh, being willing to be vulnerable and ask for help. Um, boy, that was really hard, but it was um, uh, uh, learning that tool and not just a tool, uh, that, that life skill um, has made a great deal of difference. It's even in other cultural contexts that I find myself in. Yeah. Well, hey, hermano Daniel, you wrote a book 10 years ago now, una década. The book is mm. called A Future for the Latino Church, Models for Multilingual, Multigenerational Hispanic Congregations. Now, I read this book and I cited it a few times during our first season of the show. It was actually, it was like uh, unveiling to me. I went, wow, I, I know this experience. I know it personally. I know it well. Some of the conflicts that you described. And one of the things that you did was you did several case studies that you included in the book with several congregations that you were demonstrating or, or highlighting for the reader as as models. You used the word models earlier. These are congregations that were doing these things in healthy ways. One of them actually is a church that's five minutes here from, from where I live here in Chicago, New Life, New Life Covenant, mm -hmm. uh, a powerful church here in Chicago. Let me ask you, have you stayed in touch with the churches that you examined in these case studies and that you kind of lifted up as, as models for, for future ministry? Yes, I have. Uh, obviously, it's been different during the pandemic that we're all um, experiencing right now. But uh, some of those pastors, like Wilfredo de Jesus, who you uh, were just mentioning when you talked about New Life Covenant, uh, churches in Florida, churches on the East Coast and in Texas, some of these churches, these pastors have, you know, we've become friends now. And it's been, you know, if I'm in town, I'll visit their churches. Um, but they have been really uh, beneficial to my my research subsequent to the book by pointing me to new people, pointing me to uh, some first-gen uh, pastors who have caught, got this vision, uh, to some second and third generation pastors who've now gone beyond multi-generational multi to multicultural. And these are, these are the churches that we're aspiring to be. And here's the name, here's the contact for that hermano, hermana, o pareja. And I'm so grateful. And, um, uh, I've continued to reach out to them just to ask for, you know, some feedback on and how things are going, but, um, it has been wonderful to just develop these friendships, uh, with some amazing pastors and, and some key volunteers in these churches. Well, praise God. Here's a question that I have for you. I always wonder the the what next once the story closes, right? Once, once a book ends, I always wonder what would have happened in the rest of the story of these people? Uh, you know, I was wondering the same thing when reading your book. What are some challenges that these churches face? Can, can you tell us a story of a challenge that was faced after your research concluded? Something that a church came up against that they couldn't solve or couldn't quite figure out. And how'd they, how'd they resolve it? Yeah, that's a great question. One, one challenge that came up uh, a number of times, I've heard it more than once. Uh, uh, one of the very first times was at uh, Iglesia Vida Abundante in San Antonio, where my friend and good brother Eli Bonilla is the pastor. One of the things that um, that church wasn't one of the churches uh, in my case study, but one of the things that he uh, identified was what I think he was the first one who, who mentioned it, 
it's like black hole. You know, they, the, many of these churches that were uh, started by the first generation, these are immigrant, predominantly immigrant churches, but their children started to come along and grow. And when they realized they were losing them um, because of, you know, cultural and language differences and other theological differences, uh, they began to adapt. And I'm describing that in the book. These churches that became went from being the immigrant church model to the multi-generational, multilingual model. And many of these churches started offering, you know, programs for youth uh, in English and Friday evening, you know, youth services. But once someone graduated from high school and became a young adult, the assumption was that they would now transition to uh, el servicio en español con los adultos. They would just now transition. And what, what these churches, several of these churches discovered was that, you know, th there was a plethora of young adults who wanted to stay working in the youth ministry with the youth pastor. And part of the reason was they didn't, they weren't ready to transition to the adult service that was completely still in Spanish, dominated by the immigrant generation still. Um, and so they all couldn't be included there. And some of them didn't fit for obvious calling reasons But they started to see a, a, a huge, um, a, a, a very quick drop off of involvement in, in, in young adults, we're talking 18 to 30 year olds who just moved away, just stopped going to church anywhere. Um, some of them began to come back in their early thirties when now they were married with children. Um, but the fact that there wasn't anything for them as young adults, they just had a transition to the Spanish only programs and ministries and services of the church um, became an obstacle. And that was something that I hadn't foreseen um, that, that some of these churches that started in the youth and, and teen ministry didn't see either. They just assumed I remember um, a few years ago, my wife and I, I won't mention the church, my wife and I were visiting a church in South Florida that I had tried to visit when I was writing this book. And basically I was told, um, that's not what we do here. Hispanic ministry means Spanish language ministry. And um, we have nothing to offer you. And so I left, but several years later, I went back and visited again and, um, was granted an interview with one of the, the, the head youth pastor of this really large megachurch. And, um, and, and he was the one describing this, this, this black hole and, um, and the resistance that he was getting to trans to, to provide something for those young adults was, was surprising. Um, and, uh, and yet the assumption was, well, of course, once they graduate from high school, come back from college, maybe they will fit right into the Spanish language ministry, uh, which, of course, was um, uh, not a valid assumption to be basing your ministry on. What a black hole indeed. It's so common. I know that resistance personally, the resistance to making a transition to the 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 main service on Sunday, perhaps having that in English or even an English component, right? Mm -hmm. I know that resistance really well. And it's just, it always surprises me that this is, this is such a blind spot, especially just because of the sheer numbers, the amount of Latinos who are now born here in the U.S. You know, your book anticipates, you know, this is 10 years ago now when you published it. So it anticipates the continued growth of U.S.-born Latinos 
who are going to mm-hmm. become of age to take leadership. And now several have. There are several churches who have taken, who have millennial or, or, or others in, in that kind of age range, age bracket, taking leadership. What surprises you about the leadership that you see from U.S.-born Latinos who are stepping in and taking leadership at the church? Several things. Um, but one thing that, that surprises me is that um, the majority of these people that, that I could think of that, that come to mind, the Joshua Canales, is, the Josh and Noemi Chavez is here in Southern California, who I'm close to, one in Carson, one in Long Beach, two churches here lo- locally. They would acknowledge, certainly Josh Canales and others around the country, that they could not they would probably not be able to serve as effectively as they are serving now the second, third and, and, and later generations uh, who are becoming, you know, who are, who are marrying outside of our Latino comunidad. And now we've got lots of, uh, of mixed families uh, ethnically and racially. Uh, but they would all say, I think that it would be almost impossible for them to be serving without, without the blessing and the encouragement of a first generation pastor who caught the vision, he or she may have said, I, I can't do this myself. No hablo el inglés o, o, o no entiendo el, eh, las diferencias entre los jóvenes y los adultos. But, but they gave their blessing. They gave their blessing and they provided resources and space and, and sometimes protection, protection from others in the first generation, protection from the denomination in some cases. Um, and so, you know, I look back and I see those folks and many of them, not all of them, but many of them, of course, um, you know, sons and daughters of pastors who are immigrant pastors. And now they're serving uh, a different church at a different time. But um, that's something that I, 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 I get excited about uh, when I see that. Of course, there are those who had to push against the first generation. Um, and, and launch out on their own without that blessing. But that blessing, like Paul and Barnabas received in Acts 15 from the Jerusalem church to go out and tell the Gentiles, you know, it is, it's fine. You're, you're, you're fully saved. You don't need to become like us to, to be saved. Um, to get that blessing, to have that letter from, those, from that first generation saying, you don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to become Jewish is something that is critically important to the success of many of these ministries. That's a very biblical piece because <clears throat> calling is a very communal piece. Mm-hmm. Amen. And even though you may have, uh, it, it's, it has a very personal side to it as well, an individual, but in the end, calling needs the communal blessing. Yes. The affirmation, the move, go ahead, the move forward, the knowing that if you fall, someone's going to be there for you. You know, all of that is so important. And what people don't realize is that we grow up in these communities that do a great job of discipling us and forming us, right? We're not just like attending church. We're being formed. This is my comunidad. This is my familia, Mm -hmm. right? And to move away from familia without having that familia blessing is so difficult. This is part of identity, not only a, a cultural identity, but it's part of my identity in the call. 
And without that, uno se siente medio gulembo. That's a very, you know, uh, Puerto Rican saying here. But you're not, you know, you're not walking right. And it takes a whole lot for you to feel like you could stand up on your own two feet and just move forward in your call without having those blessings from familia and so on and so forth. I mean, if you don't, what does that mean? Does that mean that I can't call my brother or my sister who, you know, I ate with and so forth and that I can't call them and have them come over and join me because then everybody thinks I'm dividing the church, right? And then people feel like they have to take sides. You know, there's, there's all of that. Then. then all of a sudden, instead of affirmation, it becomes un chisme, right? So this is a really really important piece that you have brought up. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah. It makes me think, sorry, Daniel, I'll say this quickly. It makes me think of the grief of, you know, last season we had uh, Hermana Sara Gautier join us for an episode. And, and she talked about how in her denomination, she just wasn't getting that affirmation as she went off to to plant the church. And she talked about how she went and joined a different a different group to to gain the support that she needed. Uh, Hermano Daniel, I wonder if you could talk to us about this, because in your book, you use a phrase. It's really interesting. You talk about intentional gradualism, about making these kinds of changes over over time. Sara couldn't do that, right? At least in the story that she told in the podcast, it seemed unlikely. And you've talked about here some who don't get that blessing and ultimately end up going to launch without it. What would you say to, to those individuals as they deal with the grief of that, as they as they try to make sense of their ministry in light of not having that blessing? What would you say? Mm. Well, it, you're you're describing something that has to be heartbreaking for those individuals who don't get that blessing. Um, first thing that comes to mind is uh, to try again, maybe one more time, to share your vision with the familia, the 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 the, the local church, the congregation, the denomination that that formed you, that shaped you. Um, and I've I've seen that it helps when we start with expressing gratitude. I would not be where I'm at. I, you know, whoever this is, like this uh, hermana that you were just describing with this calling to plant a church to say, I, I, I want you all to know your fingerprints are all over my life. Soy quien soy por la gracia de Dios. And because I have been part of, you know, X church, you've shaped me, you formed me. And I'm so grateful. You've also taught me to listen to God. And, and ask for God's spirit to guide me. I feel God's spirit is guiding me, maybe in a place that sounds strange. But I, I hope you'll listen and hear how I, I hear this experience. And this is, again, back to Acts 15. That's how Paul and Barnabas start in Acts 15. They say, let us tell you what God has done in our ministry. Let us tell you what God is doing among the Gentiles, you know, and tell the story. It, it might have turned out differently, you know, but at the end, this person who has a call, you have to go with with the call, even if people don't understand it or accept it. That's just that's the challenge that we have. Uh, the challenge the Apostle Paul had with his, you know, sense of calling to the Gentiles. It just it it was sideways for most of his Jewish Christian brothers. Amen. And I just want to pinpoint something, and that is if you happen to be a woman. Oh yeah. Even more so. Absolutely. Yeah. No. Even you, more so. Mm. So, because not every one of the uh, denominations and different concilios will affirm women in that type of uh, calling. Mm. So, 
I don't want to jump the gun here, Emmanuel, but at some point we have to then ask, what do we do when the fingerprints have not been forming, but they have been deforming? Mm. That's so right? good. I'm glad you named that, Elizabeth, that we got to think about the, the deformation that happens, especially as, as certain traditions hold strong or hold tight to certain yeah. kinds of power. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll jump into that conversation as well as things that the book didn't anticipate, some things that you just didn't see, hermano. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back to that. Daniel, I love the conversation that we're having. We've we've talked about uh, some of the really main and important pieces of your book. Let's go a little bit beyond uh, those points, and let's let's go back to uh, the whole issue of woundedness, because you know, from time to time, you would have somebody who could feel a little disgruntled over something in the church. But because we're community, you know, there were ways for people to say, mira, you know, talk to this person or what have you. And we would sort of make things, you know, be reconciled. But what we're finding now, and and you didn't speak about this 10 years ago, is that there's an, an exodus from the Latina church because people have been deformed in their formation. Uh, uh, over gender issues, over the issue of uh, who's called and who's not called, over because of the black hole that you were speaking about, right? If that black hole holds for too long, people are going to leave. And because of class, as people have moved forward and become um, different uh, professionally and so on and so forth, the Latina church really doesn't know how to hold all of those pieces, right? So our parents came, our abuelos, and they they struggled and they worked really hard. But then uh, we don't know how to be professionals and be Christian. We don't know how to be stewards of all of these pieces. And we don't know how to understand our sense of calling as a professional, except that there are some people feeling a sense of uh, being called to justice issues. Mm-hmm. Right. <clears throat> they now have full capacity to become involved in these ways. They understand the structures of this society in new ways and and they're involved. Their work involves them in some kind of a way. And we don't have models for how we move forward. And what do we do? There isn't you know, there isn't a church with a theology that can move us in that direction. Because even the second, if I could say, even like the second and third generation churches tend to continue to be uh, conservative Mm -hmm. in their theology. And that conservative theology didn't really have an articulated, an open space for being explicit about work uh, that had to do with structures, uh, social justice, prophetic work. Say something about that, this deformation and then this sense of uh, not being able to fit in with the fullness of who we are and the fullness of who God called us to be at this time. Mm. Thank you for those observations. Um, Several things come to mind. It's a great question. The first thing I, I, I think of when I'm prepared to answer a question like that 
I, I'm I'm thinking of many uh, first gen pastors, pastoras, who have sacrificed so much to nurture the faith of the second and some in some cases even the third generation, um, while at the same time they were just struggling to survive in a new land, you know, in El Norte, in Egypt, I like to refer to it. Um, and I, I have to caution myself of being overly critical of that generation. Um, you know, it's, it, 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 I, I hear second and third generation pastors sometimes uh, way too critical. And I have to say, we, we just, just pause for a moment and still recognize there are some challenges, but I think you're right. I think, you know, because our, our first gen churches, especially in, in, in more evangelical denominations tend even in the second and third generation tend to be theologically conservative that works. That's a, that creates some, some challenges and barriers for this multicultural, multi-generational ministry that we envision for the Latina church. Um, because these, these younger gener- this young generation of millennials, even the Xers and certainly now the Gen Z's, uh, Latinx brothers and sisters, boys and girls, they, they see the world so differently. Um, so they've been formed differently. Yeah. So even the questions that they would have, questions around gender, for example, absolutely for them is a very different question than it is for a first generation or even a second generation person. Right. And, and, and for them, those aren't just social justice questions, Hermana. Those, they, they sense, they have a, a sentir del sagrado, I like to say. They have a sense that those are also questions that the gospel must respond to. You know, I did not anticipate the challenges that I have seen now in the last 10 years in some of these very, I would have described as very healthy churches as they struggle with the role of women in ministry. You're right. This is this is one of those uh, challenges that puts that younger generation at risk that I did not think of. I mean, 10 years ago, I was primarily thinking about some of those demographic challenges, dropout rates, teen pregnancy, gangs, etc. And those are still challenges, but there are there are other challenges that are exacerbated in these multi-generational churches. Uh, things that like Gabriel Salguero, um, who's over there at El Calvario in, in uh, Orlando and uh, the president of a very large uh, uh, umbrella organization that's doing wonderful things for the Latinx community. He talks about weapons of mass distraction, uh, things that we did not anticipate that we have to address uh, like social media, the internet, you know, sexually explicit content. And, and we don't talk about in many of the conservative evangelical churches, you're talking about, there's certain taboo subjects. You talk about them maybe with your mother, you know, but fathers don't talk a lot with their sons about these kinds of things. And of course, now we're, we're, we're expanding that conversation to how does the church respond to our LGBTQ plus teenagers and preteens, not just those in El Mundo, but those that are growing up in our church silenced. You know, they need, they need this community, like the women who feel called to ministry, but they know that in this community, you know, and there's not even a, there's not language. You talked, we talked about language earlier that we feel comfortable using to have the conversations. I, I think those are, those are some of those issues, the social justice issues, you know, we, we, we get, it's so easy to be, when you talk about being 
malformed or deformed. I, I think of the emphasis that we still see, unfortunately, in churches that place more emphasis on behavior modification than on inward transformation, mm-hmm. discipleship. But That's even good- they, even there, even there, having to expand what it means to be a disciple. What is having it to be? A, what does it mean when you're a disciple? Um, when you have a world where we we need comprehensive immigration reform, where education, public education reform, housing uh, is still a challenge for many of those. Um, of course, healthcare has been exacerbated by this pandemic. We know that co- people of color, particularly Latinos, have been impacted by this. Uh, these aren't just social justice issues in the classic secular sense. These are these are discipleship issues, and. And, and and in some of these churches, those are just like, no, aquí tratamos las cosas de Dios. We don't know las cosas del mundo. And, and so that, that distinction between sacred and secular has to be redressed. <clears throat> Many of the things that we think are secular are, are, are spiritual. They, we have to respond to them. And this younger generation is forcing us to do that. And when we don't respond, se pintan la calavera, the Mexicans say, they leave. And my, yeah, I uh, I was thinking of, of as you were saying this, I kept thinking of how you started. You started by wanting to honor the first generation and their efforts to start a church. That that effort is is huge, right? We 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 want to acknowledge the fact that it was something bold that that this first generation did when they moved into this country and they started churches that were small. Um, beacons of latinidad right small beacons right. of mexico small beacons of puerto rico right like the, the these churches became kind of safe spaces for the community and uh the reason i'm bringing that up is because as you and elizabeth talk about some of the malformation that has happened and some of the the lack of language and dissonance that there is between the two uh, you know the the diaspora those born here and the the migrant generation that that came from elsewhere one of the things that i keep thinking about is this language piece about justice issues, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about how migrant churches, they were involved in making sure that people can get housing when they needed it. They were involved in ways to make sure that people can get meals. I, I say that because I witnessed it, right? I witnessed uh, a migrant church caring for needy in ways that, that they understood, in ways that made sense to them. And yes, absolutely, as you both have mentioned, there is an issue of of a disconnect between what we call social justice issues and seeing those as discipleship or gospel issues. Uh, and yet I also think the reverse is true. There, there is a dissonance where younger generations don't see the ways in which older generations have tried to address mm. what, would, what would be called social justice. So there, there might be a bridge here somewhere that, right. we, that we need to connect to, to maybe break through that black hole that we've described. I don't know. Am I making sense here or am I going crazy? Yes, it's a theological bridge because you see, talking about language, first generation pastors brought an understanding of the church from where they came from. And in Latin America, we were, we were um, the missionaries were not allowed to participate in political activity because they were in a foreign land. And so what they did was that affected the theology and they taught us to shift away from marching, for example, and instead we learned to pray. So todo es oración y ayuno, ¿ve? But 
to march, to be a part of protest, etc. And then uh, that can cost your life mm. in Latin America here because of democracy. And I put that entre comillas. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a different dynamic, right? But we don't have that language. Uh, we don't have a theology that carries us there, and we don't know why we don't even have it. Uh, it's a legacy that mm-hmm. we have. We inherited this legacy, and we need to go back to that because, if I can, these are colonized pieces. Mm-hmm. We have to. That, this is why we have to do our own theology. Mm-hmm. We can't just continue to carry from generation to generation all of these pieces. We we need to look at them mm-hmm. and expand and deepen the tradition that we have received so that it becomes relevant in our own time. Any healthy church needs to do something like that. And so how we choose to do that, how churches understand that it's not just about the worship show that they put on on a Sunday, right? Because ahora todo es un show. It, that it's not about the show, but that we need to be able to teach. That teaching is, is a very important part of discipleship. And, but teaching that is not indoctrination. Teaching that creates spaces for dialogue and for creating the language. And for saying, pero que tu, quiere, que tu me quieres decir con eso? You know, like, what are you talking about? Si nosotros hicimos esto y lo otro, etc. And I might say, no, pero es que eso lo hacemos siempre. Pero how do we understand that we want people not to continue to be poor? Que lo que queremos es que, que that they have a piece of land and that they have their own house instead of always having to go for, you know, if there happened to be some public housing or lo que fuera. Right? <clears throat> so to be able to talk about those things. To be able to say what our understandings are, rather than come to a space where everything is pre, where everything is prescribed and predefined, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's the kind of teaching that creates that language and that interaction. Emmanuel Daniel, what do you see in that? No, I think you're absolutely right, and and I think sometimes backing up and asking ourselves why are we not having those conversations. I don't think it's because the vast majority, whether first, second, or later generation pastors, don't see the importance of the conversation. I think it's our priorities. I think it's our ministry priorities that in many ways um, mitigate against those conversations and 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 keep the conversation revolving around the performance that you were describing. You know, the, many of our churches, just like dominant group churches, have started to embrace what people call the, the commodification of the church model. You know, we have to market the church. There's a market out there of X number of next people, and we want them to come to our church. And, and by that, we, we're talking about that performance on Sunday morning. And so everything is driven by what happens at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. That's where we generate the revenue. That's where we can build the bigger campus. And, and, and I think what, what happens is that we become so focused on that that moment that everything else around the week revolves around that, um, that becomes the, the characteristic of the church. And in many ways we've adopted some of the, the, the problems of the dominant group evangelical churches. Uh, we need to raise our own questions. We need to, we need to raise questions that will lead us to these more important questions that we're talking about. For instance, are, are we, are we helping the, 
the rising number of uh, educated, um, upperly mobile Latinx uh, young adults and teenagers? Are we helping them to to reflect on the on, on their vision of the good life? Because if we don't talk about what the good life is, they're probably we're, they're they're being reinforced twenty four seven in what's Gabriel Salguero calls the godless vision of the good life in this country, which is more, more of everything. Um, I think that those are the kind of conversations we, we have to have. Um, it and goes we back have to the tools. It goes back oh, yeah, to that decolonizing. And we, and we have the tools. <laughs> we, we certainly have the tools. I think our challenge is that we have, as Hispanic evangelicals, we have been colonized, not only in our native countries, but we've, like you said, hermana, we've been colonized in the way we think theologically, if we're thinking theologically at all. We, we're colonized in the way we think theologically. And we're asking the questions, I think, that from what I'm hearing, I, I, I think we're often asking the wrong questions. We're asking the questions that upperly mobile middle-class churches in the suburbs are asking. Hmm. And those aren't our questions. Um, and it's not just a cultural thing. I think we, we need to, I, I think we might be bringing something to this country that might help uh, reform a deformed, you know, church in our country in general, uh, raising some questions that uh, are critical to our identity, to our future as God's missional people. And when we don't do that kind of thinking, then you have what, what, what just happened that a lot of Latino churches were dragged in the muddy streams of thinking that an idol was a, was a prophet. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because we didn't do our own thinking yep. because other voices, right? Talking about colonization and colonization, other voices, white voices, especially become authorities. Yeah. And we continue to bow down to them. Mm hmm and, you know, I might put a Latino name on it or a Latinx name on it or whatever. You know, I might market it differently. But it's la misma cosa. We haven't done our own work as a church. Y eso es bien importante. Right. Amen. Hermano Daniel, as we wrap up here, because we want to honor your time, I, I want to ask a kind of funny question here in the sense that <laughs> it's an odd question. Ten years ago, you, you cast a vision for a future for the Latino church. Now, let me ask you about the next 10 years. What is a future for the Latino church for the next 10 years? What do you see? I alluded to this 10 years ago in my book, Emmanuel. Thank you for the question. And uh, let me see if I can frame my answer briefly and, and concisely. I, I, I foresaw what we're seeing, and I'm not the only one, obviously. Lots of people were seeing this 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 seeing the Latinx community more and more dominated demographically by second and third later generation, the, the native born US born Latino. Um, that's a reality. Uh, another reality is that I think we have um, an incredible opportunity uh, because we are Mestizo people, biologically, culturally, psychologically, unfortunately, sometimes even, even theologically, we're mestizo in our outlook. But that, that as I said in my book, the, the being living in that hyphenated 
place, you know, between, you know, Mexican and Mexican American or between being Boricua and being American, whatever it happens to be. Um, that that hyphen, which is a painful place to live, is also an incredible bridge. And I, I, I'm convinced that in, in, in the next 10 years, especially from what I'm seeing around our country, uh, some of the some of the healthiest churches that we're seeing are, are, are pre- predominant Latino churches that clearly have a multi-ethnic, multicultural vision. They're not they, they, they sometimes don't even like to define themselves in terms of being a Latinx church, but clearly they are. But that's because they have a much broader vision. And as our country in general becomes more multi-ethnic and multicultural with, you know, what what I think it's it's Wade Clark Roof at the University of California calls the Browning of America. I mean, there's there's a church that is, I believe, perfectly positioned by God, like the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 11 to to reach a, a growing, diverse community that. Um, that is going to be the United States of America in the next 50 years. And we look forward to that vision with you, brother. Thank you so much for joining us today for the conversation that we've had about some of the the things that we need to address in Trenotra Gente, right? The decolonization piece. I think that that metaphor, that image of the black hole, I'm going to be thinking about that for the next couple of days in my own church background and how I might go back and have uh, more gracious conversations with the pastors that that shaped me early in my, in my ministry and in my life and, and in my call. Uh, I want to say something to our audience, if I may, if you guys may, will permit me. For those of you that are wishing for that call or, or grieving the, the, the loss of that blessing to say, hey, you are called and go forward. I hope that you see in Hermano Daniel, I hope that you hear in Elizabeth, uh, two models of people who went out, who, who have started ministries and have seen those things flourish, that, that sometimes we have models beyond our local church that give, give us examples of what the world could be like. And Hermano Daniel, you're one of those individuals that I look up to that moved to Mexico, to Puebla. Man, the Lord bless you for that, for being a model mm-hmm. in that way. Thank you so much. And Elizabeth, of course, is, is, is a model of what it means to take up your call as well. So thank you both for that. Let me say a couple quick things to the audience here. Reminder again, the first webinar in our series of webinars will happen on March 24th. You can register for that by going to worldoutspoken.com slash webinars. The next episode we have, we're going to continue this conversation about decolonization by having Sandra Maria Van Opstel join us. She's the executive director and co-founder of Chasing Justice. She's going to help us answer the question, what does a multi-ethnic or multiracial church look like when whiteness is not at the center? It's going to be really, Mm. really good. So make sure to join us for that. If you have any questions or doubts, lingering ideas from the conversation we've had today with nuestro hermano Rodriguez, leave us a message at 312-725-2995-312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, your city, tu pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. You can also submit those questions by following the link in the show notes. Follow us at World Outspoken on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at World Outspoken. Hermano Daniel, you get the last benediction. I pray that God will bless the Latinx church. Inspired by Psalm 67, that God will bless us and make his face shine upon us so that his ways will be known on earth. And so that every ethnic group, not just nuestro pueblo, will come to know the salvation of our God. Amen. Thank you, brother.
Adiós, hermano. Great to be with you, hermana Elizabeth. Igualmente.